Welcome to Diverse, the podcast of the Society of Women Engineers. SWE supports the advancement of women in engineering and technology. You can find all of our podcasts on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and SWE's blog, All Together, at altogether.swe.org. Looking for more information and data on women in engineering? Head over to research.swe.org and review the groundbreaking research that SWE has been conducting. SWE's research efforts include reporting on women of color in engineering and how community colleges may play a role in getting more women to graduate with engineering degrees. You can also check out the annual SWE Literature Review in SWE Magazine's State of Women in Engineering issue. Welcome to SWE Stories, Tales from the Archives. I'm Troy Eller-English, archivist for the Society of Women Engineers. And I'm Ann Perusik, SWE's Director of Editorial and Publications. This month, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 and the first lunar landing. Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin first set foot on the moon on July 20th, 1969, while Michael Collins circled overhead in orbit in Apollo 11's command module. However, while Armstrong, Aldrin, and Collins are the most celebrated faces of the moon landing, there were, of course, thousands of people working behind the scenes at NASA, at other government agencies and corporate contractors. You know, that's right. And some of those engineers, scientists, and mathematicians just happened to be women. And some of those women just happened to be SWE members. We've dug deep into SWE's archives to celebrate some of the SWE ladies behind the lunar landing and the scientific and technological achievements that they helped to propel. And we found so many great interviews, speeches, and articles in SWE's archives that we couldn't fit it all into one podcast. So this is the first of a two-episode series, and we hope that you will listen to and enjoy both episodes. And do you remember the, the moon landing? Ah, yes, I do. I remember that day of the landing. I was at some sort of party that one of my classmates was having. I was a young teenager, I think. I had just finished ninth grade, and I remember that there was so much excitement and that the moon landing kind of overshadowed everything else. The TV was on, and a bunch of us just watched the coverage instead of um, participating in the party. But, you know, (laughs) it was a huge achievement. You know, we've been hearing about this since, you know, elementary school when, when John Kennedy made the speech that, you know, we were going to go to the moon. So... It was a huge achievement and the result of two intense decades of scientific exploration and engineering innovation. The lunar landing really stretched the boundaries of humankind, I think, both physically and intellectually. And the Cold War and the resulting space race really opened the doors for women in engineering. The United States faced such a shortage in technological manpower that the government and contractors, by necessity, turn to woman power. And SWE was happy to leverage the public's interest and captivation with the space program and the nation's scientific and technological manpower shortage as a tool to recruit more women into engineering careers. You know, that's true. And as an example, past President Beatrice Hicks was invited to speak at the Space Symposium for Women during the Air Force Association Convention in Las Vegas on September 21st, 1962. Uh, She began her speech, quote, anyone who ever scans the employment section of the newspaper 
and I'm sure we all have at one time or another for any number of reasons, must be impressed by the endless columns of advertisements seeking scientists and engineers. This is especially true in the mushrooming space field. Unfortunately, there are not enough top quality engineers to meet the nation's needs and requirements. The shortage is critical and growing worse year by year. Women today comprise a vast reservoir of engineering brain power. More than 130,000 women graduate from our universities and colleges each year, but less than 200 women engineers are graduated annually in all the United States. At a time when our nation is experiencing a chronic shortage of scientists and engineers, the best possible talent among women has been barely sampled and, more often than not, shamefully overlooked. Uh, Hicks continues on for another five pages in her speech, explaining how women could succeed in engineering and how engineering, and particularly America's exploration of space, could only succeed with more women engineers. And Hicks could speak personally to the opportunities that were available to women in the nation's space program because her invention of the gas density switch was used on the rockets that carried spacecraft in the early 1960s. And I might add, yes, as a side note, that this invention was so important that her patent earned her a spot in the National Inventors Hall of Fame. Absolutely. You know, Hicks concluded her speech awed by the opportunities and the challenges awaiting the women engineers willing to tackle them. She wrote, quote, Space is such an exciting field, it is hard to decide what aspect to discuss. Gravity, down toward the center of the Earth? But then what is gravity when we are halfway between two planets? Where is up and down, and what is direction? Guidance of space vehicles alone is a big problem. After we decide where is up and where is down, how do people exist in space? What supplies do they need? Food? Yes, an environment to accommodate their bodies. Another big field. And then suppose humans decide to stay on the mood for a while and look around. What are the logistics? With what are we going to look around? What are we looking for? All whole new areas. The saying, the world is yours to conquer, is no longer true. Yours is the universe. End quote. And that's quite a quote. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> so all of the engineers and the scientists that worked on the Apollo program were, you know, much like Hicks, awed and excited by the challenges that faced them. In 2003, I was able to observe an oral history interview between SWE's first archivist, Lauren Cada and SWE fellow Barbara Crawford Johnson, otherwise known as Bobby. Uh, Bobby received the Achievement Award in 1974 in recognition of her pioneering work because she was the manager of the Apollo Command and Service Module Systems Engineering in the North American Rockwell International Space Division. That's quite a mouthful. But she, um, had started like as a senior engineer in aerodynamics in 1957. That was when the Soviet Union successfully launched Sputnik 1, the first artificial satellite to reach low orbit Earth. 
The American government was surprised and panicked that the Soviets had achieved this first. And while the Air Force and NACA, which is NASA's predecessor, had already been pursuing space exploration, they redoubled their efforts following Sputnik. And Bobby Johnson thought this was a thrilling opportunity. The first Sputnik went up. The, um, the chief engineer called me in with my director and said to me, learn all there is to learn about reentry. Wow. That was my assignment. Wow. And uh, so uh, I started studying anything that had been done that I knew of. Langley, Langley had done quite a bit. Yeah. And, uh, well, the Russians, of course, but I didn't have anything on them. But there had been some other studies made that I got a hold of. and. It was, uh, we, I, I don't know, that was, I went to Langley, in fact, to, to talk to a couple of the fellows that had written papers. Yeah. And the Mercury was starting, uh, I can't remember what year Mercury and, and Gemini were, but that was, That's okay. yeah. was following that somewhere. Do you remember how you felt about those advances? I thought it was great. Yeah. I thought uh, every time the Russians did something great, I thought it was even greater because we would have to do it <laughs> or get to do it. During her interview, Bobby Johnson also described her unique experience working on Rockwell's proposal in 1961 to design the Apollo program's command and service module. We've edited this clip for length, but you can find a link to the whole interview transcript on altogether.swe.org. The whole concept of going to the moon and landing people and bringing them back just blew my mind. Yeah. I th that, that was the greatest. I couldn't get over it. In fact, it was, uh, you know, I, I worked night and day on this, just making, making everything come together, helping to make it come together. But anyway, we, um, we worked on the proposal. We were sort of astonished when we got it. But there were th we went to, to Langley to, for the, to work out the work statement. And there were about 30 of us, probably 35 maybe. But I forget where we landed. We were to land. But at any rate, we couldn't go on from probably Columbus uh, because of weather. Okay. And, and so they rented a guy named John Pop. I think he was the program manager. And we, he rented a, chartered a Greyhound bus. We all got on the bus and that was, we were on the bus all night and uh, guys had, you know, had, had on suits and stuff. And, sure. And I was sitting next to my boss and he was uh, going over what he thought the work statement should be. And we had a light on, I think it was two o'clock in the morning. I, I looked at him, I said, do you know, Earl, this light is the only light on this bus. And all that snoring you hear, these people are sleeping. Don't you think before the eight o'clock meeting, you should get some sleep? 
In fact, I know I should. And anyway, he finally turned the thing off. But Jeez. Anyway, we got off, I remember, about four or five in the morning. We got to D.C. and we're filing off the bus and these guys were coming off and they had a beard by this time, you know, they hadn't shaved. And they were all, the, their tie was all yeah. and, and well, we just looked terrible. Anyway, I got off sort of about two-thirds of the way after two-thirds of them were off. And there were some guys, young guys, that looked like they'd been up all night doing whatever and probably drinking, yeah. were standing around. And they said, one of them said, boy, did you see what I see? And the other one said, yeah, I bet she's having a good time. And the other one says, hubba, hubba. <laughs> here, here you were up till 2.30 going over technical work statements. <laughs> but but we, we got to Langley and they were trying to give out the keys to your room. Uh -huh. And somebody said, I think it was Charlie Feld said, oh, just throw the damn things down because they had, we were shorter rooms and people had a room together. Sure, throw the damn things down. And so they said, well, what about Bobby, you know? So they had to find my room, but, but <laughs> anyway, <laughs> we were about an hour late for the eight o'clock, they changed to nine. So we could at least freshen up a little. Yeah. Ivy Hooks, another SWE fellow, received a degree in mathematics in 1963, and was soon hired as an aerospace technologist in the Space Vehicle Design Branch of the NASA Manned Spacecraft Center. She described her early work at NASA during a SWE oral history interview with Lauren Cada in 2003. Although her 21-year career at NASA was largely successful, her story is punctuated by a few unpleasant experiences related to being a woman in a in a traditionally male workplace. The following is an excerpt from her oral history interview. We have edited it for length. However, you will find a link to the full transcript on altogether.swe.org. When I went to work at NASA, the title I got was called an aerospace technologist. Now that really bothered all the men because that's what they were too. There was no engineering title. Okay. You were an aerospace technologist. Or you could be a mathematician or a physicist, but they didn't put me as a mathematician. Because of the other classes, they made me an aerospace technologist. So then I got the same title as all the engineers. And then I, I, I worked for a year, and the, the first year, the first job I had was uh, to model the lighting on the moon so that we could model it, understand it, and model it so the astronauts could be trained for the lunar landing because they're going to fly that thing to the surface. Um, and so being a student, I did what any student would do, went to the library and looked <laughs> it up. And uh, NASA had a teeny tiny library, no bigger than this room almost. Uh, but they had a lot of microfish of stuff because they were just, again, still moving there. So uh, I found a lot of data and it was about, uh, it was written by the Russians in the 1920s. When I told them what I wanted, they said, is it classified? And I said, no, it was written before the communists, you know, really took over and shut everything down. So, uh, and it was all totally mathematical, description of the albedo on the moon. Now, 
So I didn't mind reading about it on the moon, and the moon was wonderful because with no atmosphere, piece of cake compared to Earth, and uh, it was all very mathematical, so I could construct models. It was just, I did it. Uh, and then uh, right after that, uh, I had some real problems with a couple of the men I worked with. They, they thought it was really fun to play practical jokes on girls and be really cruel, and one of them was my boss. Oh, no. He was in an acting position. It, today, if somebody did that, they would not only get fired, they'd probably get thrown in jail. They were so really cruel. But I was very fortunate in that I had two women that I could go to. One was another woman engineer who worked in the group I did. Now, I will point out that when I first went to work, I thought it'd be fun to be the only girl. Like I'd been the only girl at home and often the only girl in physics classes and things like that. Uh, but I found out when I went to work, that wasn't any fun at all. Mm-hmm. Because many of the guys did not know how to work with women. Well, they weren't even real good about working with each other sometimes, but they definitely did, didn't know what to do with the woman. So one was a woman who was not that much older than I. Well, they were probably about six, each about six years older than I was. One was an engineer, and the other was a secretary. The one that was an engineer said, you know, you don't have to put up with this stuff. The one that was uh, the secretary, I went to her and said, what do I do? And so she went to her boss. That got me into the highest level within that organization. And I just said, you know, this isn't working. And and I don't like being treated this way. And he said, well, we don't want to waste your talents either. And so I went to work in his organization. And he was trying to build a cost model to project future programs. And I remember we were doing things for 1984. You know. Wow. That was way in the future then. 20 years, <laughs> 20 years in the future. Uh, and uh, we're trying to predict cost and layout programs for that far ahead. And also it was all very advanced stuff. And so you were looking at different concepts of how we might get do things. I mean, the, the lunar program was going on. We were flying Gemini. A lot of people were working on the Apollo program, but we were working on just advanced stuff. And if I needed to know what it might cost for a propulsion system or try to figure out how you would estimate that, I'd just go look up somebody that was in propulsion and look them up the phone book and call their name and say, can I come talk to you? Wow. Well, let me tell you, not many guys object to a cute 22-year-old. <laughs> yeah, use your imagination here. Um, a cute 22-year-old coming into their office and sitting there and asking them what they do and why they do it that way. Because people love to tell you what they do. <laughs> you do interviews, you know that. Uh, they really love to. And if you listen, they'll teach you a lot. And so I started learning all kinds of things about all kinds of systems. Um, and, of course, I also learned who knew things. Who were the people who knew and understood things? Who could explain things well? Who would answer questions? And, and then I started putting that knowledge together to build that model. The cost modeling project eventually faltered, but thanks to the broad engineering knowledge she gained during the project, Hooks was transferred to the Applied Flight Dynamics section as an aerospace engineer. So they sent me to work in a group that did a lot of the designs of vehicles and of the all the aerodynamics of the vehicles and things. And that was an absolutely wonderful place to work and wonderful group of people to work with. Um, it was all guys, except for me at the time, uh, as far as engineers were concerned. Um, 
They did have some women, and they had degrees in math, and these women were all probably 20 years older than I was. Um, and they were called computers. And what they did was sit all day on a Frieden or a Monroe calculator, those big machines, and sit there and integrate numbers by just sitting there adding things up and running wow. numbers. They could make those machines sing. But when you were estimating and you were doing your first analysis and all, they could get the numbers back faster than the computers could. Mm. So it's it's hard to realize that we did Mercury and we did Gemini and we did a whole lot of going to the moon with not very much capability. I mean, with having to use a lot of manpower, woman power, um, and very simple calculations uh, as opposed to what we use today and the capabilities we have today to simulate things. Right. But uh, it was just a great bunch of people. An awful lot of them had worked on, on all the projects. They'd worked on Mercury and Gemini. There were some others that were out of school about the same length of time as I was, a lot my age. Um, and they loved to solve problems. And they didn't seem to care if you were a boy or a girl or you, you know, were a little green man from Mars. I mean, they really didn't care. And uh, it was a place to really fit in and have, have a grand time. So I spent a very long time with that group. And that's when I first, that's where I came out of to go in management. That's one of the first groups I managed. So it was a, that whole bunch of people holds a very special place for me still. If Ivy Hook's description of the female computers at NASA Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston sounds familiar, it's because you've probably saw similar female computers represented in Margot Lee Shetterly's book and resulting movie, Hidden Figures, The American Dream, and The Untold Story of the Black Women Mathematicians Who Helped Win the Space Race. The true story behind Hidden Figures took place at the Langley Memorial Aeronautical Laboratory in Hampton, Virginia, and the women who originally established that pool of female computers later became a member of the SWE Los Angeles section. Long before the Apollo mission, Virginia Tucker was hired in 1935 to set up that pool of female computers at Langley. From 1935 until 1946, she hired and managed hundreds of female computers who calculated and processed all the data from Langley's air tunnel research and experiments. And Tucker's work is noted in the early chapters of Hidden Figures. But the contributions of other SWE members toward the eventual lunar landing is not as well documented. And while I haven't found an extensive firsthand accounts of their work, I did find some information about them in the old SWE newsletter and other documents in SWE's archives. So I'd like to acknowledge them. Emily Snow worked in the rocket section of the Physical Sciences Laboratory at the White Sands Missile Range. Uh, Sister Mary Ellen Murphy was an assistant professor at St. Joseph College and a NASA co-investigator for lunar analyses. And Maxine Rose was a systems analyst for Boeing at Cape Kennedy in Florida. And SWE past president Alice Martin worked on the Saturn and Apollo missions with the Douglas Missile and Space Systems Division as lead engineer in the design qualification section of the stage design branch. She was responsible for the analysis, coordination, and documentation required for controlling the environmental testing program of electronic units to verify design suitability for use in flight stage vehicles. Yes, and also notably, SWE Fellow and Distinguished Engineering Educator Award recipient Yvonne Young-Clark was an associate professor at Tennessee State University in the 1960s. 
However, she spent some of her summer sabbaticals as an aerospace engineer at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center in Huntsville, Alabama. And there, she investigated hotspot issues in the Saturn V rocket booster engines. Also during her summer sabbatical, she worked at the NASA Manned Spacecraft Center in Houston, where she helped to design the container that was used to transport lunar rock samples back to Earth. And Phyllis Gaylard, SWE's very first scholarship recipient and now a fellow, was hired by TRW in 1963 to perform structural analyses of the lunar module descent engine for the Apollo program. Later, she studied thermal stresses in soldered joints in order to predict their fatigue life under thermal cycling and to improve the life expectancy of solar cell arrays on various spacecraft. So those are some of the SWE members who we know directly contributed to the Apollo program in the 1960s. There were, of course, many other members who worked in aerodynamics, rocket propulsion, and other fields where their work was not specifically done in support of the lunar landing, but whose research certainly paved the way for the engineers and scientists of the Apollo program. You can find links to the full transcripts from Ivy Hooks and Bobby Johnson's interviews at altogether.swe.org. We'll hear more about their experiences in the Apollo program in the next episode, as well as interviews with SWE past presidents Arminta Harness and Naomi McAfee. We hope you'll tune in. On behalf of myself, Troy, and everyone else at SWE, thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. Please don't forget to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or like your favorite episodes on SoundCloud. If you have not already made plans to be a part of the largest gathering of women engineers in the world, visit our WE19 conference site, we19.swe.org.